Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskering Podcast. And today we are in the land of whiskey, but we are talking about not whiskey for once. It's more the Brandy Ring podcast for this episode. So I'm thrilled to welcome on Brandon O'Daniel from Coppering Kings Distillery to talk all about it. Brandon, welcome. Thank you very much, sir. How are we doing today? Doing well, doing well. I've been looking forward to this one. I'm glad we could get it together and uh excited to talk about Copper and Kings. What can I say? Definitely. So I'll uh, preface the conversation with saying I had the pleasure of visiting Copper and Kings back in August and been wanting to talk about it since just because it's it, one, we don't talk about Brandy very much on the podcast, but also, as I said, it's in the heart. It's in Louisville. It's in the heart of Kentucky and whiskey country. So right downtown, right downtown in the, in Butchertown. So there's Lots to talk about there, but uh, you know, let's start off with just what is the Coppering Kings kind of origin story? So we've been around for a little over nine years now, and we are an American brandy company. Uh, we mainly focus on apples out of Michigan and grapes out of California, and then we bring the wine back to uh, Kentucky and then double distill it on these beautiful copper pot stills uh, that Vendome made for us. Then we barrel age them, typically or the majority, in one-choose bourbon barrels, uh, put them downstairs in the basement. We're right off the Ohio River, and then we blast music to these things uh, 24-7 uh, to make them vibrate a little bit. And uh, yeah, when I was down there, the the playlist of the day was, I think it was the White Stripes. I think it was Jack White's birthday. I want oh, nice. to say something like that. Yeah. Pretty good day to show up. Yeah, it was pretty good. And um, that's definitely going to be a question. Man. But, uh, it, you know, actually, yeah, what the hell? Let's we'll skip ahead to that question. So, you know, the sonic sonic aging, if we'll use that term, uh, not a lot of people doing it, but a couple are. So I'm curious if that was something that Copper and Kings decided they were going to do from the beginning or did it come later on? No, from the very beginning. Uh, as soon as you walk into the distillery, uh, you get that sense of music. Uh, the owners always wanted us to sound and act like a band. Uh, so the music just kind of really flowed into it. Actually, uh, half of all the employees that I have on the production team were musicians at one point or the other. So um, there's always some sort of music playing in the background. And it's really an integral part of our overall brand, um, you know, and then our, our taste profile, to be honest. And I love the idea of musicians being involved, musician myself and the creativity behind it, despite all the, there's a ton of science behind it too, but the creative side is, uh, can never be too represented. Um, were you guys doing, I don't know the timeline exactly. Were you doing the sonic aging before, uh, blackened kind of made it famous or. Yes. Yep. And then when that whole thing came through, um, the one positive or several positive things happened, but in most of the articles that were written about that, uh, we were mentioned as well. So that was, it was a really nice, uh, feather in the cap i guess sure absolutely and uh i know you said the the owners were very you know the herons were very um music focused and they and wanted to act as a team and as a, a band but the idea of sonic aging i think uh most people might attribute it to to dave pickerel thinking about it was, was that kind of where the idea came from as well no, we got the idea 
um, from a couple of different places. Uh, it originated, as far as I, I know, um, in Japan, and sake uh, producers were playing music to their fermenters uh, to make the yeast bounce a little bit more. And then there's a few uh, vineyards in Italy uh, that actually play music to their vines to move the uh, microclimate a little bit by pulsation. So that's where we got the idea. Um, and, and that's kind of where we started. We wanted to be really interactive. Um, that's why it changes every day based on artist uh, birthdays and special events in the distillery or throughout the world. Um, and that that's kind of where we got the idea and where it kind of took off from there. Nice, nice. Uh, again, I, I love the, the idea of it. it and you don't quite... Um... Not you, but the the uh, the listener and, and visitor don't quite get the sense of how uh, how much influence it can have until you're down there in the basement and you realize, okay, it's not just kind of a regular noise level you're going for. Basically, unless someone's in there working or taking a tour, you're blasting that sonic. It is blasting yeah. to the point the right song. I can be sitting on in our rooftop bar and the right song will vibrate my cocktail exactly yeah it's it's uh it's wow. no joke it's <laughs> you're really blessed with it. i don't know i don't know to what levels blackened or anyone else is doing it but uh i mean it's metallica so i would i would kind of assume they're not doing it quietly but um i'll have to ask them at some point but yeah the sonic engine is definitely a question i want to ask because it's it was i guess i didn't know about it going into copper and kings like walking into there but it was interesting to see yeah it's cool um, um it's a, nothing else it's a cool story you know, yeah. everyone gets really impressed when they get to put the hand on the barrel and feel it vibrate. Um, we blast a lot of music through there. Um, when tours aren't open, you know, of course, my guys take over the, the stereo and put on what they want. So it's it's quite the eclectic group. Um, and really just the basement itself is a, a really cool atmosphere. I mean, we can almost hit the Ohio River with the rock. You can definitely feel a temperature drop as you walk down into the basement from the first floor. Um, and that's what's really influencing our spirits. Uh, we kind of age our brandy as like a fine wine once it goes into the barrel. Um, and I really feel like that's what's kind of separating us apart. And, you know, we'll get into this a little bit later, but you've got an extensive kind of winemaking history yourself. It was part of how you came on. So I'll, I'll say that for a little later, but be sure we're going to get to that as well. Um, jumping back, just the origin story a little bit more, uh, both for you and, and for uh, Joe and when Copper and Kings was founded, I guess the question I want to ask is where did the idea come from? Like, was there, and and how did it, yeah, where did the idea come from, I guess, to, to say like, okay, we want to start a brandy distillery? Well, I'm going to give credit where credit is due, and that goes to Joe and Leslie Heron. Um, this was their third beverage business when they got in. The first one was Nutrisoda, which they sold to Pepsi-Cola. Uh, the second one was Crispin Hard Cider, um, when they, and they sold that to Miller Coors. And then the third one was Copper and Kings. Um, so when they showed up, they had an idea, they knew the aesthetic they, they were looking for, and they kind of always toted themselves as being one step ahead and looking for the gap in the market and what's next. And, you know, especially 10 years ago, you, you look around at the brandy category and it was really just a quiet giant. Um, you know, there were a few brands in there that were making a lot of money, 
but there were not a lot of craft brandies going on. There wasn't really a lot of advertisement. So the Herons kind of thought that would be a, you know, a great opportunity to get in. A great way to spend a large fortune is to get into the spirits business. Um, so, you know, Kentucky was a no brainer uh, because we wanted to make an American brandy and age it in, you know, basically American bourbon barrels. Um, so they chose Louisville, um, really had the idea of the music influence and how they wanted the place to flow. Uh, and then from there, it just kind of all took off. You have a, uh, or do you or the, or Joe and Leslie have a, a favorite bourbon brand from whose barrels do you want to age in? Yeah. So right. I've fallen in love, you know, the, the rule is they have to come from Kentucky distillery. So that's the main okay. rule. Uh, but I've really fallen in love with wild Turkey. Uh, it's one of those few barrels that when you still pop that bung, that it's still like, it's a little wet still. And where that barrel is giving me 50 to 65% of my overall taste profile for my finest, my finished product, uh, it's imperative that I pick a barrel that is of the utmost quality. And then, you know, you'll always find a fifth of wild turkey in my backbone. But we also like that. We also like uh, Buffalo Trace, um, Willet, uh, you know, Four Roses. You know, I like to have a nice mix of everything from the big guys, uh, just because I, we, you know, we blend, blend, blend to manage our consistency. Um, the used barrel market is absolutely fantastic and so much fun to play in. Um, the bourbon guys are missing out by just having to stick to new American oak barrels because it just really opens up the character of that barrel and, and the wood and where it was in its original Rick House and where we're putting it now. Um, and it's just, it's crazy to see the differences from barrel to barrel going through and tasting. So world of fun, couldn't imagine doing anything else. When, uh, when you get those barrels, are you able to, well, I guess it might depend on the source, but uh do you get to know like if it was in i don't know from camp to, from a wild turkey for example if it was like a camp nelson a high rick barrel or do they just tell you it's from wild turkey for the most part that's all they're saying it's from wild turkey of course you know we get to go down and pick the barrels that we're going to choose that day and, and smell a lot of them and make sure they're exactly what they are and if you start paying attention to some of the writing on the side you can kind of decipher you know the special ones and you know you can smell the difference in a lot of them and we'll start calling those out immediately and, and start taking notes on them and putting them in a, a certain spot of the cellar uh just to make sure that you know when we run across a, a bourbon barrel that that's given those special notes we want to make sure we take care of it and really express it to its fullest that's fascinating i i might have been told that on the tour i don't think so but that's good to know i uh yeah, we like uh, uh, we like used barrels and we love yeah. going down there and smelling them and like you know knowing the story beforehand and being able to you know push that into ours it's it, it's imperative to our taste profile do you find that a uh, certain and I, we're getting into the weeds, but I kind of like it because that's where this podcast can go is, uh, do you find that certain, like certain ex-bourbon barrels, let's say either from Wild Turkey or Four Roses or Buffalo Trace work better with different products that you're aging? I, yes. And they at least give me different results, um, especially when we're doing um, apples versus grapes. Uh, you know, the apples are a little more straight laced and I feel like a nice rye barrel kind of really brings that in and kind of tightens it a little bit um, where some of my grapes, especially where I'm, you know, letting them age a little bit longer. Um, I like a more, you know, a little bit lower of a rye drop and a little bit more of a, a fatter, softer bourbon to kind of accentuate those, you know, those oils that we're getting from the grapes as well. 
but we'll put them in a large, a large section. And we usually uh, blend about 50 barrels at a time. And then we're smelling and tasting every single barrel before it gets dumped in the blend. And then when, while we're doing that, if we run across one that just like really stands out, uh, no matter how fast we're moving, we stop and we'll pull that barrel out, uh, and set it aside and put it somewhere different. You know, every now and then the guys get aggravated about that because, you know, they're doing other stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, when we're sitting down and we're tasting, you know, our finished product, we all agree it, it's well worth it. Well worth the extra effort. Seems like it. And I, I got to try a bunch of stuff on that tour. I tried, I must've tried like seven or eight things. Um, and yeah, none of them for me, none of them were a miss. I had, I had ones that I liked more than others, as we always do, but none of them to me were a miss or a, eh, this was just not the thing. So whatever you're doing with that, with the blending and, and the single barrels, it's going well for me. So as you said, there was uh, in the American brandy market, there were a couple of big brands that were quietly doing most of the business. And, you know, I'm not, based up here in New York. So I think of like Laird's for the apple brandies and things like that. But, um, and still there are not many brandy producers, especially as you compare it to like a bourbon or an American whiskey producers across the country. So when Copper and Kings was started, you know, who were the, if any brands, distilleries, people that, uh, that Copper and Kings looked to for inspiration and guidance. Well, you know, Laird's, of course, is another family favorite here at the house. Um, you know, they've been around forever, especially in the American brandy market. So, you know, yeah. you've got to show respect where respect is. Um, but I think that was a big lure, especially for the Herons when they were starting this was there were not a, a lot of uh, people that were doing it, uh, I guess, right. I don't want to say right, but um, on the craft side of things and really kind of giving a heritage back to, to that spirit. You know, before Prohibition, um, brandy was a, a huge part of the American culture, and we've kind of lost that and gone to annual crops instead of perennial vines. Um, and we've kind of lost some of that heritage, especially here in the Midwest and eastern side of the United States. Um, you know, St. George is another one that they, they were looked up to that made some nice brandy. Um, Osalis is another one that made some nice brandy. Jermaine Robin, he's another hero of mine um, that just making some fantastic brandies. Um, but yeah, that small group was, you know, kind of the the spear point in this entire revolution. And, you know, we, we really saw it as an opportunity to, to slide into the market, put our own style on it and uh, really be represented well, um, if nothing else, just because there were so few people on the shelf. I got I mean, as I said, I'm a, fair, a fan of Laird's. I've got some of their, they do some single barrels up here, uh, cast strength, which, ooh, so good. Um, I drank it side by side with the, the bottle that I got while I was there at Copper and Kings, the Heritage Apple um, single barrels. And I mean, of course, very different profiles, but they matched up really well. And that was a delicious comparison. Uh, so the, as you said, there's, there's not many. So in thinking about kind of when you're starting this is kind of the last origin story question, uh, American whiskey brands, bourbon, rye, whatever you want. If you want to start a brand, it's, it's easy. I think, you know, once you get past the cost of it, there's a certain ease of it because 
you either choose to make your own distillate from the start and wait, or you make your own distillate and you sell chain of vodka, or you source while your stuff is aging. So American whiskey has a place like MGP or Ross and Squibb, whatever you want to call it at this point to, and others, Bardstown Bourbon Company to source from, to start off. Is there any comparison, comparable source in American brandy that can supply that kind of volume while your own distillate ages? Ooh, so the overall goal is hopefully Copper and Kings will be that at some point. I mean, we're sitting on quite a bit of barrels and we've been distilling for the future for quite some time. And that was always the original plan was to start helping at least smaller guys get into the business with, with quality source brandy and really build the category back here in the United States. Um, when we were getting our source stuff, because we wanted to come out with a age spirit from the get go, and we did, uh, we had a few rules and regulations. It had to be an American brandy. It had to be distilled 100% on a copper pot. Um, so we called phew, every mom and pop distillery in the United States. And there, there's a couple bigger guys in there, but not very many. Um, and we were buying anything from like half barrels to 10, 15 barrels at a time um, and just constantly calling these guys. Uh, and, you know, at one point we felt like we had a pretty good, good section of the American brandy bulk um, bought just because there wasn't very much of it. And then from there, we've kind of built things on and um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a little different. We are, we're not in uh not the same as bourbon. Let's put it that way. Sure. Sure. Of course. So going off the, you know, the next question that comes up as you are starting and you're going, all right, you've started a distillery. What are the kind of regulations you have to deal with? It's because whiskey, again, unfortunately, a lot of this is compared to whiskey, just because that's what I'm most familiar with and what I think the, the audience might be most familiar with. But with whiskeys, you've got the 27 CFR5 from the TTB and all of that dictating what the styles are and in pretty good detail. Uh, what does it look like from the brandy side? So we're not quite as regulated as American bourbon is. Um, a great brandy has to age two years in an oak barrel for it to be called a great brandy. Other fruits, though, can just be dictated as the fruit and the brandy, and they can be aged or unaged for any amount of time that they want. Um other than that, though, especially because we're not making brandies in Europe, um, I'm kind of free to, to pick and choose the varieties and the styles that I want. Um, and we're really just limited by imagination um, and, and quantities. You know, there's quite a bit of grapes grown out in California, um, but for the most part, that's about it here in the United States. You guys have a nice little uh, grape source up there and you, you see some of the Niagara region as well on this side of the border. Um, but yeah, so that, that's really another reason why we're here in Kentucky uh, is because of the barrels. And it, it's crazy. Not only do bourbon barrels flow in and out of the city, uh, but bourbon barrels from all or barrels from all over the world flow in and out of the city and they are uh, willing and dealing like crazy. I uh, compare it to the stock market. Uh, you know, it's a lot of different varieties at a lot of different price points throughout the day, depending on who you're talking to. Um, but yeah, something different, something interesting. And it's, again, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, it, this is way back on, this was a podcast. I don't even know if it's still on anymore, but it's called the speakeasy. It's also Brooklyn based uh, way back in 2015, but Joe was on and he had stated at that point that his hope for American brandy was that 
it it wouldn't be as rigid that you'd allow for more experimentation and uh, he compared it specifically to the craft beer market and how there's individualization and character and it sounds like you know seven eight years later that's still the case still the case there's all kinds of room for innovation and experimentation and you're seeing that across the board not only through barrel aging uh, but different fruits different wine styles I mean, you know, brandy making encompasses a lot of different fermentation aspects, a lot of different horticulture and agriculture aspects, you know, that play year to year. Um, and really the distillation part is really just icing on the cake for the entire process. Um, and at that point, you're just kind of tasting those nuances that you've spent so much time either under the sun or in the winery, you know, really processing it. And that's what really makes this distillation art so cool um, is that it just really kind of brings everything together. And you can taste, you know, if those, those vines were treated well and, you know, where they were. Um, you can taste how that wine was fermented, um, and then you can taste how the, where that brandy was aged. Also, it's uh, it's a very temperamental beast, um, but it, it's just once it kind of gets in your blood, it, that's all you want to do. And it sounds like too, you know, um, we're seeing more regulation in whiskey. You've got the American Single Malt, Knockwood will have its regulations out in the summer, and um, some changes about the straight designation. But it sounds like for now, at least. Brandy is growing in such a way that you just you want everyone at the party, you want everyone trying whatever they can do. And then, you know, in let's say five, maybe even 10 years, that's when you start talking about, okay, let's categorize some of this stuff. Like is is does that's that sound my, about right? Or yeah, that yeah. that's my thought. And that's where I hope this industry leads and continues to grow. Um, you know, I compare it very much to the wine industry of things. You know, you're going to stop at my shop and try what I have and buy and listen to my story. And then I want you to go down the street to my neighbor who's doing the exact same thing, because even though they're doing the exact same thing that we are, um, their style is going to be different and their location and their grape source is going to be different. And it just it, it's wildly um, experimental just to to get in there and see the differences um, just you know, from one area of the country to the other, it's way more variance than you'll see in grain production in my, in my opinion, anyways. I think that's fair. I, you know, it's, yeah, I think on its face, that's a fair statement. I think the only time you'd start getting into any kind of real comparison with that would be uh, when, like with rye, when you start getting into the varietals and the barley types, and when you start going into the individual strains, of stuff then you can start talking more comparison to the you know the range in brandy and wine and all of that but that's what um, makes so cool yeah. is being able to like sit around and smell that in the glass and taste the differences and like sit across the bar across the table from your buddies and have that conversation i mean i feel like that's that's ultimately what what i'm in it for is you know let's have that conversation about what's in the glass how it got there um you know and what makes us smile about it Love it, love it. So uh, this is a question that'll go towards your winemaking background, but we'll start with the brandy part of it, which is, uh, you know, brandy is older than whiskey as, as far as we can tell, certainly in the Americas, the brandy would have been kind of the first things that's the, and it would have, let's, let's put forth the argument that brandy was before whiskey in America, whether it's true, we'll go back and check anyways yes yes so um as over the let's say 400 years or so that europeans have come over to america and been settling in on the mainland here 
there's been brandy distillation and also rum distillation and other spirits and eventually got into whiskey. But I'm just curious why, why you think um, that brandy never or either never became or has since not become kind of a, the national spirit in the way that bourbon or even whiskey as a whole has. Like, why do you think it, it dropped off in popularity? I, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think it, there's a, a lot of answers or, or a lot of speculation on that one. One, I think, you know, brandy was always associated as a European drink. Um, I think as America started to become on its own, it, it wanted to separate itself from the, that side of the ocean. Um, mm-hmm. And it found that it could grow grain spirits tremendously well um, and make a good whiskey. I, I think that had a huge part of it. I think when brandy was popular here, especially in the Midwest and Eastern United States, it was way more in that community farm setting where you had a lot more smaller distillations and it really reached back to that horticulture style. Um, You know, overall, America has forgotten how to garden. Um, We do not have a lot of plants in our backyards. The average, you know, American just grows grass, if that. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like brandy is is a really big connection to the fruit aspect and the farming aspect and the horticulture aspect. And I feel like we lost a lot of that when we got a little urban. Um, And then when we went through prohibition, um, you know, the and the Civil War, really, the Civil War had a huge deal on it just because it tore up the landscape tremendously. And it's it's really hard to go back and plant, you know, plants that are going to take four to six years for to produce a fruit versus mm-hmm. you know, going in and planting that same field and grain crops and get, getting money on an annual basis. So it's a lot going on. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that's kind of my my rambling on that question. Uh, it's I think it's all valid. And I was I was hadn't considered the civil war as part of it and, and things like that. And um, the, the first thing I thought of would have also been kind of the phylloxera thing in, in plague in Europe, but the whole thing that's kind of saved them was the fact that the American vines, for whatever reason, were resistant. To- yeah. The Norton grape. Yeah. So yeah, back then Mo, we were coming over here and starting, you know, grafting sites just to send rootstocks back to uh to europe to kind of deal with their their problem and super cool that it worked out um okay. interesting where we would be had it not yeah, it saved the uh, saved the entire it took decades of course but it saved an entire industry it's a cool story if you've ever got time to look into it it's uh, it's super neat yeah i'd i'd love to do one on there if uh, i might do an extra like bonus episode on that because it's so it is more of course great uh yeah, vine-based and brandy-based. But I think it's a really important story, especially for how, as you said, how green spirits and whiskeys really started to overtake brandies and uh, other spirits available to become what they are today. It's because they were available. They were available quicker. And especially once you stopped getting brandy from Europe because the vines were destroyed, then more reason to drink something uh, a little more local. Exactly. So, yeah, we'll do we'll do a deep dive on that sometime. I, I would really love to do that. Um, all right. So next up. So during my visit, uh, as I said, I got to go down to the cellar, saw the variety of barrels, and it, it was really it really is incredible. I think uh, Joe once called Copper and Kings um, barrel sluts, <laughs> and I think I think it's a pretty good 
term, honestly. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time he had, he had mentioned that you had like a gin aging in Serbian juniper barrels and, uh, and just different cask aging. So we talked a little bit about this before with how like a wild turkey or four roses might be better for another type of whether it's, it's better for grapes or apple distillate. Um, I'm just curious what, you know, what do you enjoy more as since you're now, you're really in control for, for, if you'll let me say that, you know, uh, how somehow you, I am, I am, uh, the last one standing. So yeah, I yeah. guess I'm in control world yeah. too. Anyways. Yeah. So, so which do you think you enjoy more? What's the pros and cons of each the experimenting with new casks that you can find or trying out different distillates and then trying out the casks. So I'm into the different distillates and then casking. I love a good used barrel. Um, it, it's a good chunk of what I like to do in my day. Um, but anytime I can relate back to, you know, Mother Earth, so to speak, you know, the vineyard or the orchard or some botanical when we're making gins and absinthe, um, that's really where my heart lies. Uh, I have a couple of degrees in horticulture and that's where I got started, uh, was doing plants. Uh, so a lot of times you'll find me and the crew in the basement, you know, eating on different types of juniper berries and coriander and cardamom and talking about where that lands on our palate and then using that that aspect to dictate, all right, from there, what base spirit do we want to use, whether it be apple or pear, or peach or grape or whatever it may be. And then at that point, once that spirit gets built, um, then we start looking at the barrels and then, and then we start looking at our options and whether that be wine barrels or port barrels or, or whatever it may be throughout the entire world. Cause we pull used barrels from everywhere. Joe is right. We are a bit of barrel sluts. Um, that joke never lands usually when I give it, uh, but he, he, he always pulled it off for some reason. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we have a wide variety of barrels downstairs. Um, it, it's super cool. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, we start with the botanicals. We start with the fruit. Um, then we see what that brings us onto the spirit. Um, and then from that point, we dictate what barrel it goes in. And then from there, we decide, uh, how close goes to the speaker. Of course, it's closer to the speaker, more interaction of course yeah, a little more a little more vibration yeah and then it's a little easier to get into so for sampling as well and I, I'm, that has nothing to do with it but uh, <laughs> hey. uh so the it's just in brandy in general because again this we've i think maybe definitely one maybe two episodes of the podcast have been kind of brandy focused and and neither one was way back in the beginning. And then, um, so we haven't talked about a lot. So I'm going to, I'm asking you a lot of questions about kind of the basics of brandy for that reason. So thanks for bearing with me on that. But um, you know, one of them is uh, that kind of area of consumption. So let's say Joe mentioned, I think this was on this, that same podcast. Was, he mentioned the brandy belt as this kind of belt through the Northern Midwest and going all the way to strategically farther than that really across the u.s but especially in the northern west and in the western new york area um is that you know is that still a thing do you do you see that pattern in in sales and where people are enjoying copper and king's products for sure wisconsin number one state in the united states by far i love that state they take such good care of me <laughs> 
every time I go up there, everybody I know about, everybody I speak to knows about Brandy. Um, they are they are intelligent about it, informed. Um, and then those guys like to drink. Uh, you also see that, yeah, in Western New York, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, you'll see that. Uh, we see a little bit of that through Chicago, Northern Illinois as well. And then, yeah, you get out on, you know, Oregon, Washington, uh, Northern California, those guys know about Brandy also. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there's a small little section of the United States that's really supporting the cause. And then every year you kind of see it expand a little bit and you'll see hot pockets pop up throughout the country. Um, but yeah, North uh, Northwest and uh, North Midwest guys, um, they like to drink brandy. I think I've got a friend in Wisconsin and uh, I think it was recently named like the, the drunkest state in America or something. So, <laughs> uh, so thank it's you, Wisconsin, for... Yeah, thank you, Wisconsin, for taking care of Copper and Kings and for just supporting the spirits industry as a whole. <laughs> yeah, love them. Love them to death. Love going up there. Um, we are the official brandy of Lambeau Field there for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, just got that this fall. Uh, so we've been up there three times for three home games, just handing out uh, little samples of spirits. And it has just been so much fun. Uh, cannot wait for the new season to start. Um, just to go up there and hang out with those guys. So yeah, I've got nothing but love for my Wisconsin guys. That's awesome. So so you might be a little sour. Oh, God, sorry, this pun just came to me. Might be some sour grapes about uh, Aaron Rodgers potentially leaving. Or uh... yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, it, it is what it is. I, I understand, but um, you know, I, I have become a, a Green Bay Packers fan to say the least. <laughs> If it makes you feel any better, I, I honestly could not care about football. It's just not my sport. I'm a baseball guy. Right. But because he might be coming to the Jets, you know, <laughs> I have to at least know about it. So, um, last... yeah, exactly. All right. So, uh, jumping back to the, um, just the setup that you have there and talking about the distillate. So, you've got these three beautiful pot stills in there each descending size but um they really are kind of beautiful when you go in there and the and it's plastered across the website there's plenty of pictures about them so um rather than describe exactly what they are that way i wanted to more talk about their shape so they're they're kind of in um they're stocky i would say you know they're shorter um stocky helmets steam fed so what does that do for the distillate and is that better for a brandy distillate than a green distillate so we actually have four pot stills now uh they range from 2000 gallons all the way down to 50 gallons uh rosemary is a 2000 gallon isis is 1000 magdalena is 750 and sarah is 50 gallons uh, and then for those wondering they were all named after women in bob dylan's lives either uh, lovers, mistresses, or, or whatever it may be. Um, and then, so yeah, to get back to the shape, uh, our pots are stocky. They're, they're very, uh, they're very, for lack of a better term, we'll stick with stocky before I get in trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the shape had a tremendous amount to do with our style. We brought Vendome in. Uh, we really talked about how we wanted our spirits to taste. Uh, we looked at how brandy stills are traditionally uh, produced and shaped out of Europe. 
Um, and we kind of stocked every, took those designs and then squashed it so that everything would be a, a really nice rough one pass over. There's really not a lot of reflux in my pot stills. Um, and what this allows is a lot of that true the fruit, true the wine character to really come over. Uh, we get a little bit lower ABV that way. Um, so we have a little bit of reflux in the helmet, um, but not a tremendous amount. Even our swan's neck has really been crooked way up, almost vertical uh, or horizontal. Um, and then it's way shorter than what you traditionally see in most pot stills. And then we use a horizontal condenser as well um, that we back up with cold water. So it slows the uh, the process from steam back to liquid as long as possible. Um, and again, it's all about trying to capture those true the fruit characteristics. I want you to be able to taste that fruit that I picked and as I smashed it in my hand during, during harvest and smelled those fruit characteristics, I want you to be able to taste and smell those fruit characteristics and that clear spirit coming over. Um, I think the shape and so style of our pots um, really allow us to make just some elegant clear spirit um, but at the same time has enough oils and and backbone in it to stand up to a five eight ten year barrel aging um, and a once used bourbon barrel in Kentucky uh, which you know we still get hot in the in the summer down the basement we still get cold in the winter um, it's crazy humid down here um, so it's just uh, perfect for our location um, and just makes just phenomenal spirits from the get-go. Yeah, it was it was beautiful to see there. Of course, you know, I'm sure they're well maintained as well, but they're also shiny and relatively new. So it makes for a great photo op when the uh, I was there in August. So the the window doors were open onto the plaza. So it was it was a great photo and true to Kentucky weather, to your point, too. Um, I landed that morning, went to the hotel, went to the wrong hotel first and then went to the right hotel. And then um, it was sunny, a little cloudy, went to the hotel, checked in, turned around maybe 20 minutes, half hour later, came outside, pouring rain, <laughs> just downpour and thunderstorms and all that. And the first stop I'm going to is Copper and Kings. And I'm, I'm staying in downtown Louisville. It's like a nine minute drive. So I get in the car and <laughs> drive over. I get out. It's still raining. And I go to have um, brunch first at the restaurant, which was excellent, by the way. We're not going to have time to talk about that, but that restaurant is awesome. Thank you. Um, and the staff are as well. Just absolutely awesome. So I eat in the restaurant. By the time I'm done with my meal, it's bright and sunny again. And the tour and the plaza's all dried out. So I was told in Kentucky, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. It'll change. And being there, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. We usually get all four seasons in about every 24 hours. So yeah. it's a lot going on down here. Exactly. All right. So the next thing I, uh, you know, we'll talk about both the grape and the apple distillate. I want to talk about the grapes first, just because it's kind of, I don't know why I feel like that's, that's what I thought of first when I went to Brandy, despite having apples and apple Jack and apple brandy everywhere near me. I think of grapes first. And Copper and Kings in particular has three grapes that you guys use. And correct me if I'm wrong in this case, but it should be the Muscat, the Chenin Blanc, and Columbard. That is correct. Right. And the way that they've been described is the Muscat was vibrant, electric, alive, 
Shannon Blanc was for um, the aging and length on the profile and kind of a black dress elegance. And then the column bard was if you took that black dress and had the person dancing on the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're, uh, they're really interesting, very, very different grapes. Uh, that column bar gives you that, that nice citrus note and that pop and that, you know, that sunshine, so to speak, and the wild night that everyone really wants. Um, the Shannon um, is how everybody usually starts out in the evening looking good and expecting to be home by 1030. Um, but those give me a lot of those buttery notes. Uh, they kind of remind me of a nice malolactic Chardonnay. Um, it really does allow me to lengthen that barrel aging aspect. And it's kind of the, the glue that binds the two grapes together. Um, and then the Muscat, um, crazy floral, very perfumey, um, just just in your face and um, elegant all at the same time. And I kind of use her for the top layer, uh, the Shannon for the palette, um, and then that Colin Bard for the breath out. And were those, because of your, you know, your background in winemaking, were those in place as the three grapes to use when you came on? So when I came on, I came on since the beginning. Uh, that was one of the first conversations that we had. Uh, originally, the plan was not only to make American brandy in America, but to use American varieties. Um, and that was a, a good reason why they found me in general, was because I was growing grapes here in Kentucky and was experimenting uh, with a lot of native varieties, uh, especially throughout college. Um, Joe actually found a bottle of Catawba I made at one point in college. Not sure how he got that. Um, <laughs> that's kind of where, where the whole path started. Um, so we started with American grapes. Uh, they didn't necessarily do the style of brandy that we wanted. Plus, it was going to be hard to find them in the quantities that we needed. So then we started looking out in California, um, you know, because we're not making brandies in Europe again, um, I'm not necessarily confined to the type of grape that I have to use. Um, mm -hmm. So we looked at the history of brandy before those rules were even established. Um, and that's kind of where we got a, a general list. Then we went down and saw what grapes were still being produced in California. Um, and then from there, we went out there and just started looking at vineyards um, and, and talking to growers and, and tasting a lot of wines and a lot of grapes. Um, and from there, we narrowed it down to the three. Uh, we were distilling them once off uh, to begin with completely separately and then blending them at the end, um, which worked out well until we got a little bit bigger. Um, and then once we kind of got comfortable exactly where we wanted, um, now I'm starting to blend them as grapes and as wine and doing the distillation together. And, and I'm getting uh, similar results, but a little bit different, uh, which is even, which I think is, is super cool because it's even more of a fingerprint um, to our particular style. Do you do kind of what we would consider a mash bill, but do you can, do you keep the ratios pretty standard from batch to batch? I have an ideal batch that I, I want in my head, uh, but every year, you know, because it's grapes and, you know, and, and the seasons are, are definitely changing or the weather's changing throughout the season, a little more extreme, especially out West. Um, we'll go in and we'll take uh, grape samples uh, and then kind of really lay down season per season um, based on quality of the grape, based on the load of the crop um, and based on, you know, the, phenolics of the wine and then from there we'll put together a, a unique blend um based on on those aspects more than anything else so in a way i mean each batch could be depending on the weather and, and how things are going each batch could be its own vintage 
Each batch is, yes, each batch is different. Each batch is its own vintage. We don't sell them unless we do single barrels as a single vintage that way. And we don't necessarily describe them on our label because, you know, we're we're more brandy for the bourbon drinker. Uh, Me being a wine geek, um, when you go down to the cellar, that's how they're broken out. That's how all my notes are taken on them. Um, That's how we taste them. And then from that point, we, we blend, blend, blend to manage our consistency. And then with with those grapes uh, from California, do you have certain farmers and regions that you, again, are consistent with or is it more, you know, what's available, what tastes best year to year? It's a little bit of both. Um, A good chunk of our grapes are coming out of the Central Valley. Uh, We were 100% acquired by Constellation Brands in 2020. Of course, Constellation has a tremendous amount of vineyards in their portfolio. Uh, So since then, I'm starting to see some grapes coming way further north that I'm having access to. Um, But but yeah, uh, first and foremost, quality. um, And and then we got to make sure that we can get the quantity and at the price point. Uh, that we can afford to bring these things back to Kentucky and, and distill them on pot stills in uh, in Kentucky instead of California. And uh, so this might this might be a, a delicate question, and um, you know, if necessary, we can I can cut this one out, but we'll see about it. Let's see. Uh, we've seen obviously Constellation, like you said, it's a huge brand. It's a huge umbrella brand and owns vineyards and and many different spirits companies and with some they seem to have kind of a, a let's say a heavier hand if you will than others but with the distinct impression i got going through copper and kings going through the tour and such and and even listening to you talk today is that there's it's not as heavy a hand with you guys like they're really just letting you do what you've been doing doing it well and mainly giving you more access to other materials and other sources um and feel free if you don't feel like that, you know, you can answer that. That's fine. Well, we're good. We're good. I don't have any secrets. Um, overall, yeah, Constellation has been really good to us. Um, they've allowed me to continue my style. Um, they have opened up some access to some finances and to some vineyards that I didn't have access to before. Uh you know, being a bigger brand with a large sales team, they did structure the way we were selling alcohol a little bit. Um, I've only got three SKUs that are, are nationwide now. Um, so you can't necessarily find my gins and my absence and my liqueurs anymore unless you come to the distillery. Um, so so that one has been a, a bit of a, an adjustment. Um, but yeah, overall, um, I think, you know, once Constellation really gets behind a brand and, you know, wants it to succeed, uh, they have the power to do that. Uh, those guys definitely can talk wine and fruit, uh, which is right up my alley. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we're hoping that, you know, Constellation and Copper and Kings uh, can become something super cool and make us uh, really not only a national brand, but a household name. I, I do hope that it, that is good to hear. Number one, that's great to hear about the relationship that being said i do hope that the gin and the absinthe in particular um are become more available just because i ran out of room honestly in my suitcase coming back so copper and kings was the first place i went to so i was worried that if i had too many bottles from there then you know down through the, t- the length of the trip i'm gonna run out of room i still ran out of room but i think my biggest uh regret of not buying on that trip was either the gin or your four-year-old aged absinthe barrel proof 
Yeah, the, yeah. the gins are really good. That four-year-old absinthe, though, is uh it's is delicious. Uh, yeah, I I've been begging my friends, just grab me one, find a way to get it to me. I and I'll and you know, I will work that out with them. But the it was just so good. And I I love absinthe, I love black licorice, anything. Um, but it was there there are not a lot of good absinths, I would say. <laughs> It's an interesting category. Yeah, we're we're still getting used to having it back after 2007. You know, we didn't have it here for 100 years. But the few absence that I've had that I really enjoyed, yours, of course, um, uh, some of the absence from Spirits of French Lick, Alan Bishop, um, as you mentioned earlier, Jermaine Robin. They have a great absence. Um, big fan of theirs. But. Otherwise, it can be overtaken and unbalanced and too much one or the other flavor. And uh, I was really impressed that even at 130 proof, I think it was, that your absinthe was still quite drinkable, you know, a bomb of flavor. Uh, and I could tell it overwhelmed a couple of the other people on the tour with me. <laughs> but I quite well, liked it. Well in the class, but uh, yeah, that bottle will get you in trouble if you let it. Um, mm -hmm. it that being said, though, it's one of my favorite spirits to make. Um, we spent a lot of time on our absinthe formula. Um, you know, it's the history of it itself. I mean, it relates back to the phylloxera story as well, if you want to get into that later. Um, yeah. just, uh, it's, it's so much to talk about with that. You know, absinthe started out as a, a great base spirit um, or fruit-based spirit. So that that's really what kind of sparked our interest. And then when we got to making them on those pot stills, uh, especially on Magdalena, she just makes just the most beautiful absinthe. Um, it was just a no-brainer for us to kind of get into that. Um, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to make. Not the best to clean up, but it's a lot of fun to make. I imagine it's, it's like a gin in many ways. It's difficult to get those, uh, to scrub those flavors out of, out of the still. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's a two to three day process for us to make it. Um, and then it's another two day process for us to get the, uh, the aromatics out so we can go back to brandy. Right. Um, interesting thought just came to mind. Uh, I wrote a review re recently that had to do with Pete and how it's my personal belief that you just can't get Pete out of a still. There, there's always going to be a little bit. And I thought about a company like Berklotic, for example, where they have their unpeated whiskey, the classic Lottie, and then they've got on the other end of things, the Octomores, the hugely peated whiskeys. And um, even though the classic Lottie is unpeated on paper, for me, I still get some smokiness and, and peat on there, kind of like it was made on a still or made near a still that made it. So it's just kind of peat in the air getting into the liquid. Um, do you find that, like, are you, are you really able to get all of those aromatics out from it? Or is there always a little bit left that, it's kind of characteristic. You know, I, that, that's a really good question. So when we make our gins and absinthe, we actually anticipated that to some degree. Uh, so we're able to separate our gin baskets out. And then we have two condensers on there. And I only use one condenser uh, for my gins and absinthe. And I use another condenser for my barreled spirits and my clear spirits. For the most part, you're able, you know, you can get a good chunk of those aromatics out. And then we have to climb in and we hand scrub the inside of all those pots and get them really, 
really clean, uh, you know, but at the same time, um, I feel like those nuances and each time you cook, it's just like a nice uh, cast iron skillet. You mm -hmm. know, every time you cook something in there, it adds just just a little bit of character to that copper. Uh, copper's porous. Um, so so there is a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, I think overall with, with like the right cleaning regime, I think you can for sure clean it enough to, to do other spirits in it. Um, but I also feel like that, you know, I can taste the copper and King spirit because of the, the pot itself, if, if that makes sense. I feel like each pot has its own character. Um, you know, I can cook the exact same grape spirit in all four pot stills, and then we can lay them blind in front of anyone and all, everyone's going to be like, oh, well, this one's different from this one. This one's different from that one, um, which is super fascinating and keeps me interested because, um, they're just individual beasts in themselves. And each time I cook with them, uh, they show me something a little different. Absolutely. And that's also, we should, before moving on from the, the grape distillate, there's also, uh, what might've been my other favorite product, the Mistel. Ah, yeah. That's another good one. Yeah. So, um, I'm the whiskey drinker in the household. My wife doesn't really drink spirits that much, maybe in a mixer, but I thought I, I got to try the Mistel during brunch. Uh, and loved it. It was, you know, it's a dessert wine, but it's not overly sweet. It's still got a lot of citrusiness and, and brightness. And um, I brought it back and she liked it quite a bit too. It was different. It's not like drinking a sauterne necessarily or or um, sherry. It, it's a little different, but I enjoyed it. So I just want to ask, how, did, how do you make the Mistel? Yeah, so that is basically, in layman's term, a fortified grape juice. Uh, so the Mistel is a Zinfandel. Um, we will basically press it out just like we would um, to make a normal Zin and then throw the yeast in. As soon as we get about a half percent to one percent alcohol, we stop the fermentation process with eau de vie uh, Zinfandel brandy. Um, so that basically fortifies it, makes it stable. And then you have all those natural sugars from the grape itself still there, giving you that sweet point. And then we raise it up to about 36 uh, proof. So it's just enough to where um, it's kind of my, my version of an ice wine without having to actually pick grapes out in the cold. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a good, that's a good way to, to compare it. Um really sweet it's still got some alcohol in there um it, it yeah i serve it two different ways before we kind of use it as a digestive and as an aperitif as an aperitif we actually cut it with bubbles um either prosecco or just soda water and, and serve it that way before meal and then after the meal we actually drop it in the freezer and then serve it as a digestive just straight and it's, it's kind of a nice little uh liquid dessert it is it's really nice and yeah, I think the comparison to an ice wine is better. The, I was thinking of more the Noble Rot grapes um, mm -hmm. before, but yeah, the ice wine does taste different from a Noble Rot. It's similar process, but not by any means the same. And uh, yeah, I think you know preserving yeah. those natural sugars out of the grape that, that that's really the key. You get that nice jammy, fruity Zinfandel aspect. You know, yeah. but they're kind of like 22, 24 bricks, so there's a lot of sugar there. <laughs> Um, and, and then you raise the alcohol where, you know, it's it still got a little bit of a, an alcoholic love to it. Um, and it's, it's just really nice. It's something different. It's fun. It's beautiful in the glass. 
Um, and then I find it really, really versatile. And then so once we fortify that, that juice, we actually then barrel age it back into Zinfandel wine barrels uh, that we've, we've made special for this. So they've not been sulfited or anything along that nature. And then we lease barrel age it for two uh, years. And I'm really a fan of that third year, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how long the batch that I have was, was aged, but it was delicious. And I said, no sulfury notes uh, in there, which, yeah, it was just beautiful, sweet, vibrant. So I'm um, glad I remembered that because that was not in my outline and uh, it should have been. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that one's, that's another one that's really fun to make because, you know, it, it just goes back to, it's just so close to the vineyard. It's uh, It's nice to have in the refrigerator. Absolutely. That's where it is right now for me. <laughs> this month's Impact Spotlight is on Pokeno Whiskey. Sitting just south of Auckland on the North Island of New Zealand, Pokeno is one of the Pacific Rim's newest distilleries. Founded by whiskey industry veteran Matt Johns, Pocono set out to create a uniquely New Zealand single malt whiskey, one that would bring the lush subtropical terroir into the world's most recognizable category of malt spirit. I've been able to try their origin and their discovery series, as well as a single barrel double matured ex bourbon, and each were truly fantastic. And in case you're wondering whether I really do get to try these things that I talk about or whether I even like them, I'm here to tell you yes to both. If I don't like it, I don't have to talk about it. And I can't stop talking about Pocano to anyone who will listen. As of March 2023, Pocano is just starting to come out into the U.S. market with a rapidly growing footprint. I sometimes say that there are distilleries to watch. This is one to watch while sipping their already world-class single malts. Check out my episode with Matt and Pocono in late March, and order your bottle of Pocono New Zealand single malt today. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. All right, so uh, we, we're going to come back to the absinthe because I, I have a couple questions specifically about that. Um, but jumping from grape to apple, and um, as you mentioned before, there are a couple of other distillers too, peach, pear, that um, you work with that uh, we won't necessarily have time for today, but I would love to talk more about um, another time. We'll have you back for sure. Um, so going to the Apple. So one of the, uh, again, I, I had Apple brandy around. I never really drank it before, but it was definitely around in New York, New Jersey, that area. Not until I went on the tour at Copper and Kings and, and our guide explained the process that I understand that there were so many varieties that go into a brandy um, or could go into it. And I've now had kind of two separate ones. The the main blend, if you will, that you use, which is the, the blend of 18 culinary and uh, volume apples that kind of make up the general blend. And then I have the one one-off bottle that I got, which was the Heritage apple that one heritage apple which is so good um so when you were on bourbon barrel talk you said that you know 90 percent of apples are they're high in sugar and low in acid 
signed for the table. And of course I think of like a honey crisp, yep. um, but you blend in both the culinary apples, but also volume apples that are higher in acid. So I'd love for you to just go, go hog wild on how you came up with the blend of apples and, and why it's important to mix those. For sure. I, I feel like the, the mixing aspect is, again, it, it really allows us uh, to kind of put our fingerprint on our spirit, but at the same time, allow me to control the inconsistencies uh, that you see in horticulture on this side of the country versus the West side. Um, it's a little easier to grow apples in Northern California and Oregon and Washington than it is in Michigan and Minnesota. They've got a few more frost and freezes and, and just a little more volatile weather. Um, so when we started out, we didn't really, you know, I personally didn't really know what apples that I wanted to put in there. Um, and we started looking at just some volume apples and, and cheap apples. And we thought we'd start there and, and see where we went. And when we made the first few batches of wine, I was just extremely disappointed with it. Um, and then we distilled it and I was even more disappointed with it. Uh, so I kind of really went back to the horticulture drawing board um, and started looking at, you know, that's the phenolics and where I should have been in, in the first place. And we kind of gave up the sugar aspect what all together um, and really just started looking at the titratable acidity and the pH of these things, um, you know, and then, you know, how they tasted and the bitterness of it. Um, and what I found was, is those bitter notes really just carried over just absolutely phenomenally in our style of pot still and our style of, of brandy operation. Um, but I also felt like when I was distilling just two to three varieties of apples, um, I found that I was not really getting that full palate experience like I, I truly wanted. Um, and then at the same time, you know, we wanted to to make a lot of apple brandy and we wanted it to come out of, you know, just one particular area of the country. And we wanted to have as much control over that as possible. Uh, so I came up with the idea of just like, well, let's expand the number of varieties that we can. Let's set the, the guidelines so that each variety has to hit, you know, certain pH. It has to have a certain amount of acidity. It has to have a, a decent amount of sugar, but that, that's the last out of the three. And then it's got to bring a certain thing to the table that not every other variety is doing. Uh, so we went up to Michigan. We drove through and talked to several co-ops. We went and looked through several different orchards. So many growers, winemakers up there, fruit producers, got a tremendous amount of opinions and samples. And then we just started tasting stuff and tasting stuff and blending and blending until I really felt like I had a core, you know, 20 to 22 apples varieties that I really liked that were, when blended, uh, really gave a really good representation of American apple growing and then still gave me the nice phenolics in the background that you look for for a nice cider, cider apple especially from a nice Calvados. Um, so from that 20 to 22, uh, we usually narrow it down from 15 to 18 based solely on um, what time of year they're being harvested, how well they're being cold stored and things of that nature. And then we actually blend the fruit together, the apples, uh, and then press them as a blend and then make the wine that way. Uh, we ferment really, really cold. I usually spend three to four and a half weeks in my fermentation, uh, which is, is crazy long um, compared to, to most other fermentation styles. But I really am very, very... Um, 
determined to keep all those volatile organic compounds in that wine. So by fermenting extremely slow, uh, when you look into my tanks, they're not moving near as fast as what you typically think fermentation should be moving. And because of that, I'm keeping a lot of those aromatics in there so that when I put them in the pot and my pot comes on, I'm capturing all those as they come over into that stocky helmet. Um, and then therefore they get compressed back into that liquid. So therefore all those nuances uh, that the I'm getting from the apple kind of really just blend together and give me a, a nice clean spirit that just you know reminds you of, of orchard floor and you know and just springtime and fall um well at the same time not being that jolly rancher you know just artificial aspect um you know it's a it's a true apple brandy it's apples you know that's what's in there that's all that's in there um and that's what makes it so nice can't argue with that and uh yeah, three to four week fermentation is insane. I mean, even rums don't ferment that long usually. Yeah, so our, we ferment really low and slow. I have a very particular yeast strain that you know has been designed to ferment at very low temperatures. Um, and then the entire aspect, again, is just to keep as much in that wine as possible. Uh, we don't rack our wines. It's it's a very dirty wine. I want as much of that lees on there as possible. Um, again, based on that distillation style, we have huge agitators in our pots. So I'm able to keep all that in suspension. And it just kind of really brings over a lot of those classic apple notes that are missing in a lot of other um, apple brandies on the market. Do you do you need to use the same process on um, on grape fermentation? Or is it really specific to the apples? Grapes a little bit different. Uh, so we typically use white grapes and we ferment those a little bit warmer. Um, we're still very slow, very cold uh, compared to most white fermentation. We're still on the, the colder side. Um, and then, yeah, I'm still at like that three, three and a half weeks for my wine fermentations as well. Uh, a little bit different when we do reds, like when we distill Zinfandels and stuff, uh, we actually treat those like white grapes and don't actually uh, ferment them on the skins. Uh, but we do ferment those at a little bit warmer temperature just to kind of give bring out some of those red wine phenolics. So it, it's very fruit specific, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Um, sure. You know, pear peaches are, are different as well. Um, and then every fermentation is dictated by the taste profile of that batch ultimately. No, I mean, when you're saying cold fermentation, I mean, how cold are we going here? My apples, 58, 60 degrees. My, oh, wow. wines, my grapes are 64, 65 with a wow, two degree. Is... Yeah. That's very, yeah, that's um, cold. That's cold. That's below room temperature. Not every that's... yeast will do that. So we had, I, I spent a lot of time in college doing yeast, yeast trials and stuff. Uh, the winemaker uh, there at the university, he was really into that. So I was kind of always watching what he was doing and it really fascinated me. And then when I got into commercial winemaking, uh, wine, you know, yeast selection is where it's at. Um, so I had a really nice background in that. And then when I came into distillations, um, I really wanted to bring that over because I was curious on, you know, how well that would be dictated in a distillation, a distilled spirit. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I, I can feel a or taste and, and smell and, and even feel a tremendous difference based on the yeast culture. We are definitely going to have to have you back to spend more time on, on that because, I mean, I'm a nerd and i'm gonna hurt on this kind of stuff and i'd love talking about the process with this uh so for the apple brandy too just going back to that original question of uh having 
bringing in apples with more acidity in them. Does that, what does that mean for the, the chemical reactions that are taking place and, and the fermentation? Like, does it help to have it more acidic? Uh, I mean, so it brings its, its complications a little bit. Um, I find that it makes things, you know, I'm usually the first one out of the vineyard. I'm usually the first one out of the orchard. So on that aspect, it, it's really nice. Those last two weeks, you know, that's usually when all hell breaks loose. Um, so it's nice for me to kind of swoop in there and, and kind of pick mine when my, my apples and my grapes are, are a little green. And then when you go into the fermentation aspect, yeah, if, if it's a little acidic, um, too acidic because you, you you know you're picking tons and tons and tons and you're only taking samples um, and for the most part I, I'm relatively good and I'm relatively close but but every now and then we get a little off um, so yeah you've got to be really particular on the yeast style that you're you're using the yeast strain um, how long you're going to let that ferment uh, when you want to pull it if you're going to let any residual sugar stay how long that's going to or how that's going to translate into your overall spirit. Um, I tend to lean a little bit more on the acidic side than the basic side, uh, mainly because of my barrel aging aspect. Um, you know, most brandies are traditionally put in toasted oak. Uh, so the openings inside that barrel are, are relatively tight um, and you don't get a tremendous amount of penetration. So that brandy can sit there for quite a while um, and just age very elegantly. Uh, where we use used bourbon barrels that are usually at a number three or above char, even though they've been used and that the tannin aspect has been pulled, um, the brandy really has that ability to go very, very deep into that barrel and come back with a lot of characteristic, which is super cool. But if you're not managing that, you're not giving that brandy enough umph and enough backbone so that it can go in and out of that barrel, in and out of that barrel in these Kentucky conditions, the barrel just actually ends up eating it. And what you end up getting is a liquid two by four at the end. And nobody likes it by fours so what i have found through trial and error mainly and, and reading a bunch of books and just like asking a bunch of nerdy questions anybody that would sit down and talk to me um is that the more you can give that that spirit its initial ump the longer you're going to be able to let it to, uh, to barrel age uh fruit spirits are way softer um than grain spirits um so you've got to you've got to pay a little bit more attention to what it's going in where it's sitting in the cellar um how long it's going to be there um, and then when you pick it out of the, the vineyard, hope that answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, to that end is the, when you're going into the barrel, um, for in the whiskey industry, there's, there's arguments about, you know, do you go in with a low barrel entry proof for this reason, or in Scotland, they do a slightly higher barrel proof than we're even allowed to in the U S for, for their own flavor reasons. But, um, with, is there a preferred entry proof range for fruit spirits in general or specifically fruit by fruit it's mainly yeah it's it's based fruit by fruit uh and, and mainly it's based on taste i usually go in a little bit warmer with my my grape spirits uh we're usually bouncing low 130s uh, we typically come off the still at about 134, 135. Um, we'll aerate a little bit to blow some proof off, but we typically do not drop our proofs uh, before going into the barrel. And then my apples, uh, we usually bring those in at about 124, 125, maybe 126 proof. Um, I find that's kind of the sweet spot. We experiment it with going higher. 
Um, and I felt like it got to a point to where I wasn't pulling enough out of the barrel and was just kind of sitting there a little bit stagnant. And then we also experimented with going really, really low. Um, and then I felt that the, a lot of times the barrel just ended up eating that spirit, even at that low point. Um, I like a brandy at a little bit higher proof point. I feel like it kind of binds those aromatics a little bit tighter. Uh, so that's just my distillation style. I mean, that makes sense. And so in if for the apples, then you must not be losing a lot of proof over time. Cause I think the, I don't have it in front of me. I think the heritage apple that I have, I think it's a, at about 124. Yep. Yep. So we don't usually lose a lot of proof points downstairs. Um, I'd say that probably came out at one. Well, I'm, I'm sure it did. It came out at 124. And I, I almost guarantee it went in at like 125, 126. That's, I, I guess it's, it might make sense for, um, you know, for, for Brandy just It's just, it's amazing to think that in Kentucky, that's happening that you're not losing a lot that you're not gaining proof or losing too much proof just because everything Kentucky can get somewhat weather influence and all of that and I know that's a broad generalization but um still it I think it's it's fascinating um it's the basement it's where we're yeah. aging our barrels that's yeah. and it's on that river that's what's really dictating how our barrels act it's amazing I love it uh all right, so we've already decided we're going to have you back, um, but I couldn't let you go today without talking about the absinthe a little bit more. All right. So, um, as I said, I loved the absinthe; it, it was so good. And on um, uh, this was back in 2017. You and Joe were on uh, another show called The Southern Fork. <laughs> and you, you yep. both love. I, I do my homework for these. Um, you know. You both love botanical spirits, talked about absinthe and gins. And um, one of the things was you said, you never start with the neutral spirits for for these. So for the absinthe, what do you use as your as your basic spirit? So we use our great brandy for our absinthe. Um, and I'm a, usually go a little bit heavier on the Muscat variety for that as well. Um, when I go to make an absinthe or even a gin for that aspect, um, the biggest botanical you're putting in there is the base. And if you're starting with something neutral, in my opinion, you're already shooting yourself in the foot, um, especially on these these recipes that just are very botanical forward. Um, if you can give your base to have character uh, and that be, you know, your overall starting point, then it just becomes really, really easy to start laying botanicals in there in places where you feel there are gaps. You know, you're not trying build this entire puzzle from nothing you've got this really nice basic structure where you just got to just beautify it or, or change it a little bit to where it gets to the point to where you want it to be and use i think it's at 15 herbs and botanicals in yep. the absinthe uh were you you know were you drawing from a particular style that you really liked or um just what was around had you come up with those 15 a little bit of a, a little bit of column B. Um, you know, we wanted to make an absinthe that was different. Uh, we wanted to make an absinthe that was an ode to the past. So we started looking at some some old style absinthe recipes and tasting some older style absinthe when we could find them and really kind of dictating the overall structure from there. Um, you know, and that gave me, you know, let's, let's say six different botanicals that I felt like, all right, these are in 
in most absence. And from here is a nice structure. And then you add that grape aspect and you, you tweak your grape varieties a little bit. So that they kind of fill in some of the blanks as well. Um, and from that point, you got, all right, I've got a pretty decent absinthe. And then it's like, all right, so how can we make this like phenomenal and stand out? Because I want all of my spirits from Copper and Kings to like pop in the cocktail, pop in a glass and like for somebody to taste it and be like, man, that's different. That's Copper and Kings. Um, so from there, we went back to the, the drawing board and we went into the botanical room. Um, we started, I started reading a tremendous amount of books on, you know, edible botanicals and, you know, old witches tales. And we got really spooky and weird on this absent thing. Um, and then we just started eating some stuff and just writing down notes and like, again, just trying to fill in those, those blank puzzle pieces, uh, to the point to where we had an absent that I felt was very representative of the category. Uh, but at the same time had that classic Copper and Kings, we don't care. We're making it the, you know, the way we want to, um, mm -hmm. taste profile. And that's really why I'm so proud of that absent. It was a team effort. It took us a while to do. Um, and it's just phenomenal in the glass. It really is. It, it really is. And the, so the last question I have in the absinthe is also, um, of course, I loved it at 130 proof again, but I'm a proof hound, so I can handle it at 130. Um, there's also a version that is at a lower proof. And of course, other producers produce it at, you know, 80, 90, 100 proof. Uh, from a scientific aspect, how do you, how do you proof down absinthe without it louching? So it will only louche to a certain point, um, a certain proof point. So as long as you're above a certain level, you keep all those, uh, everything in solution and therefore it doesn't really give you that louche. So we usually come off the pot with our absinthe at about 133, 134. And then we just drop just a pinch of water in there. Um, and because our absinthe is so fat and oily and has so many botanicals, if we went much lower than 130, it, it starts to cloud. Uh, so that was the main reason why we chose the higher proof because uh, we didn't want to strip any of that out. Um, and then in my opinion, it's one of the coolest parlor tricks to pour you know, a, a sip of, of a clear absinthe and pour water in there, watch it turn milk white, um, all the crowd, and then pour a little bit of clear brandy back in there and then watch it go back clear. Um, it, it's super cool, super fun. It's a great way to drink it. Very true. Um, and sorry, last, this is going back that I should have asked you before, but it's good closer, which is, do you use slow proof your brandies? Yes. So that is another painstaking aspect here at Copper and Kings that I learned uh, from an old brandy book written back in the 1800s. So because we are not chill filtering our spirits and because we're using these pot stills and we've shaped these pots to where it's basically a one and over and there's not a lot of reflux and we're getting all these oils, fats and lipids. Um, we found that if we went and dropped the proof immediately, that that brandy would start to saponify or separate and that it took some pretty nice equipment to pull that back together. And that was not the style we wanted to do. So we came up with the idea to actually put air spargers in the bottom of all of our tanks. So when we blend a big batch of brandy in there, I'll go in and kick this air sparger on. You basically got this rolling boil. And then we'll drop three to 5% of our overall cut water in at a time, stop, come back three or four more days again and do the process again. And I typically like to proof my brandies over a month, month and a half. 
that makes a lot of sense actually with the mouthfeel that you get on them and the the boldness of the flavors. Yeah, it's, um, a huge, it's a pain in the butt to be perfectly honest with you because it takes a while. <laughs> um, but I can yeah. taste, we, we did a lot of experimentation on this. Um, I can taste the difference. I can smell the difference and I can feel the difference not only in my on my palate, but in between my fingers as well. Um, and it just makes a, a huge difference just to, with all things that are, are delicious and good and worth doing to take your time and slow down. Um, and yeah, dropping the proof is no exception to that. It's a perfect way to end it. You've been, this is a, and a good way to intro for your next journey on here. So Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about Copper and Kings, about all things Brandy and Brandy in Kentucky. These questions that we've never really asked before on the podcast, but you know, apples versus scrapes versus the difference between Brandy construction and whiskey and cream uh, spirits. So uh, again, just thank you for coming on and taking the time. Oh, it was so much fun. I really appreciate you taking uh, taking the time to come and visit us, uh, listen to me ramble for a little bit, um, and having me on the podcast. It, it means a lot, and uh, I really do appreciate the support. Thank you. 100%. All right, stay on with me for just a second. Uh, if you listen, listen to the end rolls for a little more information, and also see you next week. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.